0: Bibles to 1 John. I'm really, really excited about being back on Wednesday night, and it seems like forever since we've had our Wednesday night study in the book of John, 1 John. But I'd like for us to look this evening at 1 John chapter 2 and the first verse, and this is a very hopeful verse for Christians. Now, once again, I remind you that When the Scriptures were first written, there weren't any chapters and verses, and much less would you find a letter that's written between two parties that would be divided up like we find this little letter of 1 John. Uh, Since the people in the New Testament days didn't have their own personal copies of the Bible that they would take to church with them, a preacher wasn't always so concerned about whether you could actually read along with him as he was uh, preaching or reading from the Scriptures. Well, we know that's changed because... I assume, how many of you have a Bible tonight? Okay, all of you have your own personal copies. We have multiple copies of the Scriptures. And if we didn't have the chapters and the verses, it would be very, very difficult for you to find where I'm going to read. And I would dare say that most of us really don't study the Bible enough that we would be able to even find our way if we didn't have the chapters and verses to go along with us. So we thank the Lord that that's been done, even though we don't read the Bible as we should. We become interested in other things. Other things occupy our minds. Uh, Yet God has accommodated us somewhat, I would say, in in giving us a Bible that has the chapters and verses. Well, the letter of 1 John is so tightly woven that if you started at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 2, verse number 1, And you didn't know what came before it. If you hadn't read chapter 1, then you would really be helpless to to understand what John is saying. I mean, it all ties together. So for going to understand the first verse of chapter 2, we have to know what John says in the first chapter. Well, we're going to back up just a little bit and uh, start at verse number 5 to try to get into the flow of the passage, and then we'll deal with the first verse of chapter 2. So if you'll look at uh, 1 John 1, verse number 5, John says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us." My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us here tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for each one who's come to hear your word. And open up this to us tonight, Lord. Help us to understand it better, what John would have us to know, what you would have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's one word that stands out in these verses that we've just read, and it's the word sin. Uh, Sin is the question, and we've discussed that uh, several weeks ago, the different views of the sinfulness of man that John is dealing with because of the false teachers that had come into the church. Some of them said that sin doesn't matter. They said that sin is a part of the material man and has nothing to do with the spiritual man. And so a person can really sin all they want and it won't affect their fellowship with God. Well, John answers that by saying, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Then there were some of them who said, Well, now that we're Christians, we, we don't really sin any longer. And so they thought that they had reached perfection because now that they were saved. And to those, John replies, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And then there was a third error. And this is the one that was the most serious of all. Because there were some who said, we have never sinned. And so they were actually denying the sin nature. Which, of course, if there is no sin, there's no reason for Christ to come. And his death is unnecessary. And to those, John answers, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And so working backwards through those different false propositions... John leaves us in the position that yes, we do have a sinful nature. Yes, we still sin even though that we have become Christians. And yes, sin does affect our fellowship with God. So what do we do with our sin? I've sinned, so now what do I do? Well, part of the answer is found in verse number 9. We have to confess our sins. We have to acknowledge that we are sinners. We have sinned against God. And that verse also tells us that we can have full assurance that the blood of Christ, by which we're saved, is still working on our behalf. Now, that thought actually carries on into chapter 2 with the encouragement that John gives not to sin... And yet it still gives us this hope that if we do sin, that Christ is still interceding for us. Based upon the merits of his righteous life and the shedding of his blood, that all applies towards us while we're Christians and when we're in sin, and God can deliver us from it. Now that's what I want to discuss with you in this message. It's the plea of the apostle that we would not sin, but also the assurance that when we do, that God is not going to forsake us. Now, this evening is part number one of the message, and I want to deal mostly with the first part of this verse, in which John says, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Now, before we actually get into that, I want you to notice, as the first point tonight, the care of the apostle. John says, my little children. And I suppose that you really wouldn't understand that quite as well, unless you had been in uh, had a special call from God to be a pastor of a church. Now, I don't pretend to have the depth of understanding that John had uh, concerning God's love. I certainly don't think that I've matured enough that I've developed the same depth that John had in his love for other Christians. But I don't think there's really a person who's ever lived since the Apostle John that could live up to the name that's been given him. He- he's been called the Apostle of Love. But I will say this, that a pastor does develop a special love for his flock. And the most difficult thing, I think, in in, in my ministry at least, is when I see people that leave the church, for for whatever reason that might be, I I don't like to see people go. If someone uh, has to leave the area or is out of the area, that grieves me. Um, Just like, you know, the last couple of weeks, I went down and visited uh, Jason and Sheila Gertz in North Carolina, right there on the border of North and South Carolina, and I missed them. And it was great to see them again. I really miss the fellowship that we, that we had with them. Brother Jim Love was here over the weekend, and I really miss Jim Love. And I, I wish that he was here. Bill Burge, you know, who left uh, this past summer, I, I just really wish that he could still be here. And so that grieves me when I don't have that fellowship any longer. And it really doesn't make any difference to me why people have left about whether I actually grieve about it or not. Now, I thank the Lord that the ones I've just mentioned, they didn't leave because they were angry about something. They expressed their love for the church, and uh, they expressed their regrets that they had to leave here. But I sorrow over others that leave here when they are upset about things. I I guess I'm just naive enough to believe that there is no place like Berean Baptist Church. I mean, I don't understand why anybody would want to leave here. And so a pastor, you know, whoever comes to the place that he watches people leave the church and he says good riddance to them, then he really does not understand the kind of love that John expresses as a pastor of a church. So the true desire of a good pastor is that all of God's people would prosper spiritually. Now, I I like to see you do well financially, but I'd much much rather see that your soul prospers. I I like that better than knowing that your stocks and your bonds are at all-time highs. See, a pastor develops an attachment to the people. And it's really something that goes beyond ordinary friendships because the preaching of the Word of God is a form of nurturing. And when Christians are growing in the Lord, that's when the pastor feels a sense of accomplishment and that purpose that he has knits him even closer to the people. And so there's actually a codependency that goes on between a pastor and the people because when you're doing well, it means I'm doing well. Now, Paul actually uh, expressed this in Hebrews, if you believe it, Paul's the writer of Hebrews, uh, in verse number 17 of thirteen chapter, when he says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give account that they may do it with joy, and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So this nurturing aspect of the pastorate is what leads John to call his listeners, my little children. Now there's somewhat of an indication of his age in this because he was most likely eighty to ninety years old, late eighties, early nineties when he wrote this little little letter. But it's also an indication of the closeness that he had to them as a spiritual father. Many of these people were converts of his and so he always thought of them as little children. But regardless of whether they had been one under the ministry of Paul, whether it's under the ministry of Timothy, under John or some other preacher Yet John knows that they're all a part of the family of God. So that means they're all a part of John's family. And that's how I feel about you. And I hope you feel that way about me and about each other. We're all part of a family here. Now John is the last apostle. So this all falls under the scope of his leadership. And so he's very concerned about soul's prosperity. And he's teaching here that sin is very dangerous to the soul's prosperity. So that's the care for him. Now, he could have spoken of other things. He could have talked about concerns about food, and he could speak about their health. He could deal with issues of prosperity in terms of wealth. But that's not his major concern. The greatest danger that they face is that they would fall into sin. And a preacher who doesn't deal with sin is not really one who loves and cares for his people. The soul must prosper because the soul lasts into eternity. So my little children, that's really a demonstration of a a father's affection because he's connected with them. He's in the same fellowship with them of the Spirit. And so if they're going to be in fellowship with him, they must be in fellowship with God. And so after telling them that sin persists, that sin is a reality, even after you're saved, it's still there. Sin affects your fellowship with God. And so he just tells them, stop sinning. Now, that brings us to number two, which is the charge of the apostle. This is a very straightforward command. I write this unto you that you sin not. Stop sinning. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand because Paul, or rather John, is not speaking to these people, uh, not, not in the same way that Paul spoke to the Corinthians, for instance. Now, those were people. The Corinthian people were ones that had slipped back into their old lifestyles. They, they were people that when Paul uh, wrote to them and when he met with them, he kind of scratched his head and he said, What's going on with you? Why are you going back into sin? I mean, why do I always have to treat you like babies? You're not growing up like Christians ought to. I don't think these people are in that same condition. These are people who have become confused. They're false teachers that infiltrated the church. The Gnostic teachings were out there. And they saw people that claimed they were Christians and said they were the people of God. And yet they were still living in sin. And so what John is trying to do is catch them before these people begin to follow in those footsteps. So John says, that you sin not. But I don't think that he's accusing this particular group of being like the Corinthian Christians. Now, I think that one thing we have to really notice about this is how far what John has to say, what his preaching is, is so unlike the preaching that you get in churches today. Sin is an ignored topic. When do you find preachers in other churches that will get up and say, I'm going to preach this message to you that you will not sin. Well, they're not going to say that because they're never going to address the issue of sin. I was driving to the airport in San Francisco a few weeks ago, and I saw a sign on a church that said, We welcome everybody here. And then it followed it up with emphasis. It said, Yes, we mean everybody. Well, there's no doubt that churches ought to welcome everybody. But the question is, how far beyond the welcome do you go? And what do you do with the people that you welcome? Now, I know know where that church was, and I know what kind of church that it was, and I I don't think that we could assume that their meaning there was, uh, or I I think we could assume, I should say, that their meaning was, no matter where you've been, no matter where you're going, no matter what you've done, and no matter what you continue to do, we welcome you. And so we wouldn't think that they're saying there, we're welcoming sinners. I don't think their message is, We're welcoming sinners. They're saying, come as you are. We're not going to talk about your sin. We certainly are not going to pass any judgment on your lifestyle. And so the message is, we really welcome anybody. Because nobody is going to be uncomfortable with anything that we have to say. So John's message is not really appropriate for today's churches. Because it wouldn't make sense for him to say, I write this that you don't sin. If nobody's ever going to deal with the issue of sin. I mean, if you haven't looked at the previous chapter where John says all of us are sinners, then you would be confused by a message I write that you wouldn't sin. Come in, have fellowship with God. That's what they say. But they never acknowledge that sin actually prevents our fellowship with God. So how do you get around that? Or how do they get around it? Well, one thing they do is they redefine sin. We welcome you and you'll feel comfortable here because what you're doing is not really sin. And so the question becomes, what is sin? Where can we get a definition of sin? Well, before I tell you that, did you know that Christianity is the only religion that deals with sin? It's the only one that tells you how you can get rid of sin. Now, what that means is, is that sin is an integral part of Christianity. Christ came because of sin. And if we don't ever deal with sin, why do we need Christ? So really... You couldn't even be a Christian unless... And and you're not going to hear a Christian message unless it's one that deals with sin. Now, if you are a Christian, where do you go to get a definition for sin? Well, with sin being a prominent part of this particular teaching in 1 John, would you think that it would be coincidental that 1 John would contain for us the Bible's most basic definition of sin? I think that we'd anticipate that it would... John says, I'm writing to tell you not to sin. And so he gives us a very basic definition of sin over in chapter 3. This is in verse number 4. 1 John 3 verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So there's the basic simple definition of sin. Sin is the transgression of God's law. So anything that God tells us not to do and we do it, it's sin... And anything that God says we are to do and we don't do it, it's sin. Both of those are transgressions of God's law. That's very basic. And the Bible deals with transgressions and with transgressors. Now I want us to go a little bit further tonight. And we're going to look at some reasons why we shouldn't sin. Now all of this is covered in the scriptures. And it's in the background of of John's charge to the church. Why shouldn't we sin? Well, I'm going to give you some reasons. I, may, I think four of them here tonight. and, and uh, Is it four? What's your outline say? Four? A, B, C, D? Okay, we got four. You know the lesson better than I do. Four, four reasons. Now, there are all kinds of reasons not to sin, but we're going to deal with four basic ones here. First of all, why shouldn't we sin? Well, first, conscience. Why don't we sin? Because of conscience. Sin is a violation of conscience. Now, everybody has a conscience, but I'm not speaking here of the conscience of a lost person. A lost person has a conscience, but his conscience has not been affected by regeneration. His conscience is not sanctified. And so he may know the difference between right and wrong, but he can do a lot of things without his conscience bothering him. So he can actually override his conscience. He can do things and suppress the feelings of guilt that might otherwise be there. In First Timothy, Paul said it's even possible to have an inoperative conscience. Uh, he says your conscience can become seared as with a hot iron. And he means like taking a hot poker and, and cauterizing a nerve so that you don't feel any pain. Lost people can become hardened to sin so they're totally insensitive to it. But folks, a true Christian can never be that way. A true Christian cannot be insensitive to sin. Now you take something as simple as this. If I treat you badly, if I treat you badly, at some point that's going to start affecting me. I'm going to realize it's the wrong thing to do. It will bother me. My conscience tells me that I'm not supposed to do that. And so if I go ahead and do it, I've defied my conscience. And you can call that the Holy Spirit speaking to me if you want. That's okay. The Holy Spirit works within my conscience to tell me these things. So what happens if I defy conscience? Well, I've sinned because I know what to do that's right and I do what's wrong. And so what it means is that I have actually rejected God's control over my life. I begin to serve self. Instead of being ruled by God's truth and by what's holy and righteous and just, instead I'm controlled by my ego, by my passions, by my emotions, whatever you might call it, I begin to satisfy myself rather than God. And when I do that, my conscience says, don't. And if I do, it's sin. Now listen to how John addresses the conscience in chapter 3. In verse number 20, he says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. In that passage, the heart stands for the conscience. We don't want to be condemned by our conscience because you know what? happens when we are, we begin to lose assurance. We lose our confidence in God. And in the context of these verses, um, it, it's prayer. Uh, prayer and the love that we have for other Christians. We know that we're supposed to love other Christians. And if we don't, then we start to lose confidence in our prayers. Our, our nagging conscience is always there. And it's always telling us, we need to repent. We've got to get right with God. And so if you want to keep from sin... Pay attention to your conscience. A purified heart will always lead you in the right direction. Now secondly, why shouldn't we sin? Well, we shouldn't sin because of commandment. Now maybe I should have started with that one. Don't sin because God said not to. You know, if Adam had stopped and just didn't do what God said don't do, then we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in today. God said to Adam, don't. Adam had one prohibition, only one. God said to him, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam ate anyway. He broke the commandment and now the whole human race is condemned in sin. Well, that doesn't mean that God stopped commanding. God is still commanding. He still says don't. God has the authority. He has the authority to tell you don't. And that's because sin is opposed to everything that God is. God is holy. Above all, God is holy. He hates sin. And folks, that ought to be reason enough for us to stay away from it. Just simply because God said don't. I've had a lot of people that come into my office and, oh, they've got involved in some kind of sin. And it's not uncommon for people to... Uh, talk to me about this and they start out by justifying themselves in their sin. They, they try to make all kinds of excuses for it. One of the things that is kind of interesting to me is when someone comes in and they begin to talk to me about why they've missed church. I haven't been in church they'll say and, and so they tell me their excuse and give me uh, the point for why they're not in church. So I give them a counterpoint. Here's why you should be in church. Well they've got another point saying well here's why I wasn't. Then I've got a counterpoint says well you should be in church and It just goes on and on like that. Um, They say, why? And I say, well, this is why you shouldn't. You know, I wish that there was one answer that you could give for, for all counseling sessions. That it would be just as simple as this. That people come in and they say, well, here's what I did. And I say, God said don't. And they would say, okay, that's good enough for me. But that's never the way it works. It's not good enough to simply tell people that God said don't or God said do. That's not good enough. Instead, we want explanations. It's got to tell us why he says don't, why he says do. So the commandments never sufficient by itself. Well, the thing about it is, God does provide some explanations. Now that leads me to the next reason why you shouldn't sin. Don't sin and the reason is consequences. Don't sin because there are consequences. Now, God's never reluctant to explain the consequences. Think about what he told Israel. Uh, He gave them commandments, and he said, Do this, and you'll prosper in the land. Now, whether it was driving out Canaanites or making certain sacrifices, God gave them the explanations, and he said, Here's what's going to happen to you if you don't do what I tell you to do. Well, there are many examples that we could choose from. But I want to give you one example. And this, this, this one kind of, I kind of like this one because it resonates, I think, with some hard-headed Christians. This is from Leviticus chapter 10. Let me read this to you. Now, this is, this is Moses uh, giving the words of God to the priest. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, it says, Do not drink wine or strong drink. Thou or thy sons with thee. When you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now before we get into the explanation of that, I want to ask you a question. Which is greater, the old covenant or the new covenant? Now maybe that's a theological question that's too hard for some people. So I'm going to read you the answer to this. The scripture starts out, this one I'm going to read starts out, But now he hath obtained, and the he that is speaking there refers to Christ. And it's talking about new covenant versus old covenant. Which covenant is better, new covenant or old covenant? Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says, But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry. Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also is he the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises? For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place should have been sought for the second. Now, let's go back to Leviticus with that in mind. The priests are under the old covenant. And the old covenant is inferior to the new covenant. Under the new covenant, it's not just Aaron and his sons that are priests. But every believer is a priest. Everybody who trusts in Christ becomes a saved person. You are a priest. Now, do you think that you would have less responsibility under the new covenant than the Old Testament priests had under the old covenant? Those priests lived under a different covenant, and we live under a better covenant. So are we going to be more responsible than they? Well, of course we are. You know, sometimes people talk about being set free from the law, and they love to say, oh, we've been set free from the law. But you know, the Bible only talks about being set free from the law as far as its condemnation is concerned. Because actually, living under God's law and keeping God's commandments is a greater requirement for you than it ever was with the Old Testament people. We live under a better covenant. Now then, if God says to the Old Testament priests, He says to them, don't drink wine, then what do you think that He says to you? You're living under a better covenant covenant. Now, it says in Leviticus they weren't even to touch it before they went into the tabernacle. And you know what the New Testament says? The New Testament says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we're carrying around the tabernacle, the temple with us everywhere that we go. And so what do you think God says to you? God said, don't touch it lest you die. Now, let's break this up into two categories concerning consequences. There are two questions that need to be answered. The first one is, what does sin do to me? What does sin do to me? Now, there's a long list of answers to that. Some of the chief ones we find right here in 1 John. Uh, Sin ruins fellowship with God. Sin ruins fellowship with other Christians. Sin takes away the assurance of your salvation. Sin keeps you from getting your prayers answered. Sin defies your conscience. Sin hinders your sanctification. And beyond that, you could get into the physical consequences of sin because there are some of those also. Health can be affected by sin. Mentally and physically can be affected. you can be affected. Material prosperity can be affected by sin. And you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that even your physical life can be taken from you because of your sins. Now that's an interesting one because in that particular case, it, it even relates to alcohol consumption. Things that they were doing wrong there in the Corinthian church. So sin has personal consequences. And so you're foolish to mess around with sin. Now one more on that. And sin brings chastisement. Now if you love the misery of having God get hold of you. And shake you up and, and straighten you out. And beat the living daylights out of you. Then go on and sin. If that's the way that you love, want to do Go ahead because I promise you if you're a Christian God's going to do it. He will chasten you. So what does sin do to me? That's the first question. And then you have to measure it out and say, is it really worth it? Now the second thing is, what did sin do to Christ? Sin is what caused Christ to step down off his throne. Sin is what caused him to lower himself to become a man and to go to to the cross. Sin caused him to be mocked, to be spat upon, to be beaten with sticks. And then he was nailed to the cross because of sin. And you know the scripture says that those things were done for you and me while we were still sinners, while we were still in our sins, and while we're alienated from God, Christ was willing to do that for us. Well, now then that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, why would we ever want to do what lost, despicable men are willing to do? See, every time that you sin, you ought to get a visualization in your mind of of a hammer pounding nails into the flesh of Christ. Sin did that. Sin has consequences, and the consequences of it are good reasons to stay away from it. Now, this is such an outstanding point that that, uh, I think that we ought to consider this about that welcoming, inclusive church that commits or permits sin to continue. When they don't say anything about sin, they might as well put up another sign on their church that not only says, we welcome everybody, but it says, come on in and watch us crucify Christ. Won't you come and help us crucify Christ? Here's your hammer, here's your nails. Make sure you hit them squarely on the head so you drive them in right. That's why we still preach about sin and hell. There are too many consequences for us not to preach about it. Now let's look at one more. Conscience says don't sin. Commandments say don't sin. Consequences say don't sin. But there's another reason. And, and though I state it negatively, this is a positive reason not to sin. Reason is consecration. Don't sin because you have been saved out of sin. You've been set apart to God. See, every time that you see the word saint in the Bible, that's what it's referring to. When it's referring to God's people, it's saying... You're set apart. It's saying you're consecrated. It says you're holy. Michaelson gives this definition for the word saint. Of course, it comes from the word hagios, and it means sacred. It means physically pure, morally blameless, religiously, and ceremonially consecrated. You belong to God, and it's your job to glorify Him. One commentator put it this way. I like like the way he says this. He says, I am here to live for the glory of God. My supreme purpose should be to honor Him and to live in accordance with His holy will. I should ask myself, not what do I want, but what does the Lord want? What is the Lord's will? What has He revealed concerning Himself and His purpose? I start with the great desire to live to His glory, and if I do that, I shall not sin. Now, all of the other reasons were good, but it ought to feed into this one, one central issue here, one main reason. We should not sin because we are made to glorify God. Sin does not glorify God. I shouldn't sin because I have been consecrated and I have been set apart for God's glory. So there's the positive aspect. My active obedience to God and living for His will, living in His will, automatically stops me from sinning. You see, you can't do both. You can't live in the will of God and sin at the same time. So if you're looking for a way to beat temptation and to keep from falling into the temptation, be active. Be positive in your holiness. Let The faith that's been given you, the abilities that have been given you by faith in Christ work out through you. That's what Paul says when he says, work out your salvation. That's what he means. Now, some might think that uh, reading what John says in chapter 1, that sin is inevitable. He says, if you say you have no sin, you're deceived. If, If you say that you've not sinned, you make God a liar. And so it seems that sin must happen. We can't beat sin. So that's why John starts chapter 2 with, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. He says it because if it couldn't be done, he wouldn't say it. I write to you that you don't sin. So you don't sin. Conscience, commandment, consequences, consecration, those are all reasons why you shouldn't sin. So this week we've covered I've sinned. Next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at now what? I did sin. If I do sin, now what? What happens then? That's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you brought us here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, I just pray that we would do exactly what John says here, that we would not sin. Help us to keep from sin. We're consecrated. We're set apart to you. And so, Lord, help us to remember that every single day, what sin does to us, what sin did to Christ. And then to say, I will not sin. I'll follow the Lord. I'll live in his will. And then we can stop sinning. Bless us tonight, Lord. We thank you again for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.